husband uh, told me, he said the only thing wrong with him is that when he was doing physical therapy, they hurt his backbone. I said, well, you don't need backbone anymore, huh? <laughs> so I don't know how he's going to stay in business. But, uh, you're not going to be able to drive those hard deals that you used to drive. Huh? No backbone. But anyway, I uh, wanted also to remind you that uh, those of you who are new members, we're having a new members luncheon today right in this room following the Sunday school class. So that's new members luncheon. So if you have, are a new member or you're thinking about becoming a new member, we'd like to uh, invite you to that meal today. Many of you have already received an invitation. Also, uh, many of you know that Drake and Marlene Patterson are the ones that invite us to the country club uh, occasionally. Uh, they're not here today because their son, Brian, had an accident where his car flipped over five times. And uh, he ended up only having scratches and a broken collarbone because he had seven airbags in his car. He had just gotten a new Lexus. Flipped over five times and landed on his wheels. And so that's a miracle, but they're not here today, so uh, that's a miracle. I mean, that's we need to praise the Lord for that because this could be a very tragic day in that family. So I know what that's like because my middle son, Daniel, was on a camping trip with some college students when uh, a car that they were in flipped over. And he was actually in a pickup truck in the back of the pickup truck. that had one of those covers on it, and a guy fell asleep driving in the middle of the day went off the road 60 miles an hour and flipped over. The top on the pickup came off and Daniel slid on that pickup, hood of that pickup for hundreds of feet. Never got hurt. And uh, no one got hurt. The thing was there was a cop across the highway and saw the whole thing happen. He said, I expected to go across there and find no one alive. So I know how the Pattersons feel this morning. So. I was mad at Daniel for being in the back of a pickup. I mean, I wasn't the I was very angry. But anyway, okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And we are in a section that is dealing with the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower provides us with a lesson that helps us to distinguish between false and genuine faith. Now you'll remember that parable of the sower, Jesus talked about a man that goes out and sows seed on the different kinds of ground, and when he explains that parable, he uh, says that this parable describes four kinds of people who hear the word of God and receive it. The first group of people, the word of God, falls on an unreceptive heart, and Satan comes along and snatches the gospel away lest they believe. Uh, so they really never have a chance to believe. There's Some of the gospel falls on hearts and is received with great joy, and it looks like those people are saved. There's some excitement in their lives. There's some evidence that they're saved, it looks like, but it's very temporary because trials come into their life, and as soon as a trial comes in their life, their faith is tested to determine whether it's real or false. And it proves to be false. Because when the trial comes, they deny Christ. Instead of fleeing to Christ, they flee from Christ. 
And then the gospel comes in, in some people's lives, and they receive it. And uh, again, it looks like it's genuine faith. They respond to that gospel, they walk it out, they're baptized, they live for Christ for a while, and then in time, the cares of the world come in. They start worrying about things. How are we going to make ends meet? They start worrying about their riches. Uh, am I going to have enough money to retire? And they start giving their attention to that rather than the things of Christ. Or they turn their attention to what Luke calls the pleasures of this life. And again, their faith proves to be a pseudo-faith, a false faith. And then he talks about those who's, who received the word and they persevere to the end. They go through trials and temptations and every other conceivable thing in their life, and they come out still trusting Christ. He said that's the genuine Christian. Now he's going to give us examples of genuine faith, okay? Now, we're going to pick up at verse 40. That's Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. Now, let me remind you that last week Jesus was on the other side of Galilee. He was in the Gentile territory, and he delivered a man from demons. Now we come to verse 40. And so it was when Jesus returned, meaning from the Gentile side of the lake, that the multitude welcomed him. Why? For they were all waiting for him. They were waiting for him in anticipation. Uh, quite a different reception than he got on the other side of the lake when people tried to kick him out of their country. Here the people know of his reputation, they know the things that he's done, and they're waiting in great anticipation for his arrival. And so he arrives on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 41 says, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, when Jesus went to the Gentile side, he was also met by a man. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between the man on the Gentile side and the man on the Jewish side that met Jesus. On the Gentile side, the man fell at his feet. And guess what? On the Jewish side, he's met by a man who falls at his feet. On the other side, the man is not named. He was just called a certain man. This man has a name. He's Jairus. On the other side, the man had no status. He was a demon-possessed man. On this side, the man is a ruler of the synagogue. On the other side, the man was unclean. He had to live in isolation. On this side, this man is morally upright. He's a leader in the community. On the other side, when the man fell at his feet, his falling at Jesus' feet was an act of resistance. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? But this man falls at his feet in humble submission to Jesus because he has a need, and he recognizes his need. And the need is that he has a daughter who is at death's door. And so this is an emergency. Both men beg Jesus. Okay? Now, 
what we have is we have this man whose daughter is dying, and she's going to die any minute. In, in an act of desperation, he comes and he cries out for Jesus to help him. But immediately, he comes up against two obstacles, two trials, if you will. Okay? Now, he shows initial faith because he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus for help. He has to trust Jesus. He knows his daughter is not going to get well. So the very fact that he comes to Jesus, there is initial faith. But is it genuine faith? Is it lasting faith? Is it saving faith? Okay, so he comes up against these two obstacles. Look in verse 42, at the end of verse 42, it says she was dying and he asked Jesus to come to his house. But as Jesus went, look at this, the multitudes thronged him. In other words, the guy says, my daughter's dying. Hurry, come to my house now. And guess what happens? Jesus says, okay. And so he starts to go. And then what happens? The crowds gather around Jesus and it comes to a halt, an absolute standstill. Can you imagine being that man? You're trying to get Jesus to your house. Can you imagine an emergency situation? You're trying to get an ambulance to your house. And guess what happened? They get caught on Central Expressway in a traffic jam and nowhere near an exit. That would drive you crazy, wouldn't it? And if your daughter died, wouldn't you blame? You'd blame somebody. You'd blame the ambulance service. You'd blame the city of Dallas for not taking care of their road. You would blame somebody. You, say, you would say they should have done something, but they did nothing. So here this man needs an emergency situation and the throng of people stop Jesus right in his track. There's a trial. Now here's the question. Will the man's faith endure the trial and come out as gold? Or will he just deny Jesus? Hey, he can't get to me, so won't worry about him anymore. Okay? Look at the second thing. Not only is Jesus stopped in his tracks, but there is an interruption. Look at verse 43. Now, everything comes to a standstill. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? Now, if this won't kill this man's faith, I don't know what will, because not only has the parade stopped, in a sense, and his daughter needs help, but now Jesus' attention has been diverted. First, there's a delay, and now a delay of the procession back to the man's house, and second of all, Jesus' attention has been diverted to this woman. Now, I would imagine if I were the man, I'd say, I just forget it. You know, we're not going to get back to the house now. And I would just give it up. But the man doesn't give up. Now, what we're going to do here is we're, I believe that what we're seeing, in a sense, is the parable lived out in real life. In other words, what does a trial or a test look like that snatches away your faith? You know what it looks like? It looks like a delay. In real life, in the parable, Jesus talks about 
The sun comes out and scorches the seed. And then he says, that's a trial. And the person's faith just dies away. But what does a real trial look like in life? You know what it looks like? It looks like a delay. And then he talks about the thorns coming up and choking the faith to death. What does, what does that look like in real life? Well, it looks like getting diverted, getting off the track. When you need help, Jesus isn't there. Crowds coming in around you. This is what it looks like in real life. So if you want to know what it looks like, what the parable looks like in living color, this is it right here. Now, for a few moments, we're going to have to look at this woman, okay? With the issue of blood, because she too has exhibited initial faith, just like Jairus. She comes and touches Jesus' garment and says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be okay. Isn't that faith? The doctors couldn't heal her. So she said, well, I can get to Jesus, the, the great healer, maybe he'll heal me. So she exhibits initial faith. But then guess what? She too faces trials. And as a result, her faith, her initial faith, will be tested. And we will discover whether she gives in to the trials, proving that her faith is false, or whether she overcomes the trials, proving that her faith is genuine. So that's what we're seeing. Two examples here. Jairus and the woman with blood, examples of the parable of the sower lived out in real life. Now, what are the trials that she faces? First of all, I want you to notice in verse 43 that she has been sick for 12 years. It says, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. This is a chronic illness, not a life-threatening illness. She's not bedridden. She's still walking. She's just sick. So it's a chronic illness. She has been sick as long as the man's daughter has been alive. Do you notice that? The girl's 12 years old, and this woman's been sick for 12 years. So I think that's very interesting. Next, notice that she's unclean in verse 43. She has a flow of blood. Now that means she's impure. And uh, the other man's daughter is very clean. Okay. Now because she's impure, this means she's a social outcast. The other man's daughter is right there in the middle of social... She has a, she's in the middle of uh, the upper class. She is a rabbi's daughter, a ruler of the synagogue's daughter. Not a rabbi's daughter, but the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. The president of the synagogue is what the man was. He was a very wealthy businessman. He was the president of the synagogue. Just like we have a president of the president's class. Troy Hunter is a very wealthy man. <laughs> and he's clean. <laughs> but this woman's not clean. That means that for the most part, because she was unclean, anybody she rubbed shoulders with, she made them ritually unclean. Which means that she had to live in isolation. She couldn't just walk out and 
go shopping like we do because she was unclean. If she touched another person, they were unclean for seven days and they had to go do all these sacrifices so she was basically isolated. Just like the demon-possessed man was on the other side. He lived in the tombs. He was isolated from society because he was unclean. This woman is also unclean. We don't know where she lives, but we know that she is isolated. And we know that she's poor. Because look what it says. At the end of verse 43. She had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. So she's on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But you know something? She makes a brave move. She comes out of isolation, this unclean woman. And she's going to have to rub shoulders with a lot of crowds. She's going to be a lot of people on dirty, ritually unclean. And she's going to touch Jesus and she's going to make him unclean. But she does it because she's desperate. She says, if I can just get to him, maybe I'll be healed. And so she does show initial faith. Okay, but she recognizes that when she does this, if they see her, guess what they're going to do? If they recognize her for who she is, they're going to rebuff her immediately and say, what are you doing out here in the public? So she's taking a chance. Okay? So she's up against a lot of trials because if they see her and recognize who she is, she's in real trouble. So let's look at verse 41. 44 it says, so she came from behind and she touched, maybe she sneaked up and touched the border of his garment, and immediately, very important word here, her flow of blood stopped. She's healed instantly. There is the initial act of faith. But here's the question, is it genuine faith? Will it last? Is it saving faith? Now look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Now, it's very interesting that Peter calls Jesus master, and then right, turns right around and rebukes him. But that's Peter. That's how Peter is. <clears throat> he doesn't see any incongruency with this. But obviously, Jesus knows what he's talking about, and Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. And... Jesus says in verse 46, but Jesus answered, means he contradicted Peter, and he said, somebody touched me. For I perceived power going out from me. Somebody touched me. Well, how do you know that, Jesus? Because I perceived power going out from me. Now, I want you to notice that's the fourth time the word touched is mentioned. 44, touched. 45, touched. End of 45, touched. And verse 46, the fourth time, touched. This is about an unclean woman touching somebody, which was a social no-no. And he said, I know somebody touched me. Watch this. Notice that the touch is related to something. For I received power. Power and the touch go together. Now watch this. Go back to chapter 6. And look at verse 19. And the whole multitude sought to what? Touch him. Look. 
for power went out from him and healed them all. So notice how there's the touch and the power go together in those two passages. They tried to touch him, why? Because power went out from him. So I don't know how that worked. But Jesus was a man of power and people knew that if somehow they could just touch him, that the power of God would come out from him and heal them. Now that's what Jesus said would happen. Remember he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to what? Heal. Heal the sick. Raise up the lame. Cause the deaf to hear. Open blind eyes. See, Jesus had the power of God. He was anointed to do this. And people recognized that he had the power of God in his life and in his body. And somehow if they could just touch him, maybe that power that was in him would flow out and touch their body and they would be healed. So this woman definitely exhibits initial faith. But is it genuine faith? Will it pass the test? So go back to chapter 8. Because remember, Jesus has just said, Who touched me? He's asked a question. Who touched me? Now here's, the, here's one of her texts. Will she step forward and say, I did. Which will identify her as an unclean woman <laughs> and cause her a lot of heartache. Or will, will she cower back? Will she fail the test? If she passed the test, her, te her faith will prove to be genuine. If she fails the test, her faith will prove to be false. So look at verse 47. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden... She came trembling, falling down before him. That's the same thing Jairus did. And she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him. I was bleeding for 12 years. I was unclean. I was isolated. I needed help. She just lit it all out. The reason she had touched him, and look at the end of verse 47. And how she was healed immediately. She tells her story. Now, once she tells her story, here's the question. She knows that she could be rebuffed. She knows that the crowd might get very angry at her and stone her or do something like that. Haul her off to jail. Cast her out. But the temptation's to stay hidden and say nothing. But she, that's her trial. But she overcomes the trial, and she basically tells her story. Now look at verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has made you whole. And that word for whole isn't talking about physical healing. It's talking about salvation. Remember when Jesus healed the ten lepers and only one returned? Do you remember that? And thanked him? And Jesus said to that one that returned, where are the other nine? And they were nowhere to be found. And Jesus said to the one, your faith has made you whole. Now the other ones were healed physically, but guess what? 
Being healed physically isn't being made whole. That's not salvation. Salvation came only to the one. This woman has been healed physically of the issue of blood. But now that she passed this test and she came forth and gave the testimony and told her story, now Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. Now I want you to notice he calls her something very interesting in verse 48. He says, calls her daughter. Now look up in verse 42. The man had a what? Daughter. Ah, oh, they're both daughters. And this daughter is no less than the first daughter. In fact, I know she's a daughter physically, isn't she? Think she has a father and a mother? The stork didn't bring her, did, did he? No, so I mean, I know she's a daughter that way. She's somebody's daughter. Right? She's no less of a daughter than the first man's daughter. But, notice he says, she's a daughter of faith. Do you see that? She's not only the physical daughter of someone, Jesus proclaims her to be in God's family. Remember a few weeks ago? They said, Jesus said, well, who is my mother and my brothers and who's my, who is my family? And what was the answer? Those that do the will of God. Those that hear and do. It's not enough to hear. That's initial faith. That's, that's not necessarily saving faith. It's hear and do. It's a persevering faith. So he said, calls her a daughter of faith. He accepts her into the family. And he says that this faith now has made her whole. Now notice that her healing was private. No one knew about it. She was healed and no one knew about it until she told them. Her healing was private, but her salvation was what? Public. This is why I believe that it's important to give invitations. This is why I believe it's important to call people forward. There's no such thing as a private salvation. Her healing was private, but her salvation is private. Public. And then he says, go in peace. That means he's telling the crowd, that's what he's telling her, he's telling the crowd, guess what? You don't go beat her up. <laughs> She's clean now. She has the peace of God, and now she, you're to treat her in that way as well. You're to receive her. her. Her disgrace has been removed. She is whole. Go in peace. Now look at verse 49. It's very interesting. Now, I don't know how long that event took, but I don't think it just took one minute, do you? It took me several minutes to tell you the story. While he was still speaking, he didn't stop speaking, he's still talking. In other words, when Jesus spoke to the woman, he didn't just say this one sentence. This is a summary of all that he said. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and saying, uh, said to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Now we're going to go back to Jairus. The interruption is over. And guess what? Jairus' daughter's life is over. She's dead. Now, what, do you, what would you have thought? Now, I want you to put yourself in Jairus' situation. You come to Jesus, I need help, and I need it quick. My daughter's dying. 
And Jesus says, okay, let's go. And when you do, you're delayed because of the throng of the crowd. Trial number one. And second of all, then you're interrupted and Jesus spends 20 or 30 minutes with this other girl. And finally, he's, somebody, a runner comes and says, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher. What would you, if you were Jairus, how would you respond to that answer? Jesus just wasted 20 minutes with a woman who wasn't facing a life and death situation. She had a chronic illness. What's he doing spending 20 minutes with her when there's a girl dying? Would you be like me? Would you be angry? Would you be angry at Jesus for spending time with this other woman? Would you be angry with the crowd for delaying the... They knew that my daughter is dying and they, they should have opened up a way for us to get back to my house. Would you be angry with them? How about the woman herself? She was in the crowd. She knew where we were going and she interrupted. Who does she think she is? Wouldn't you be mad at Peter for getting in an argument with Jesus? Wasting more time? Would you be angry with yourself? That you didn't come to Jesus earlier? That you waited to the last minute? Would you feel guilty because of the death of your own child? You know, some of you have lost children. And when you lose children, you feel guilty many times. You say, well, if only I had... These are all normal reactions. Guilt and anger and frustration are all normal reactions. I'm sure the man had to feel all these things. Whatever he felt, his hope of his daughter's healing was over. The runner comes and he says, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. Now, Jairus has just seen the power of God go out of his body and heal a woman who had been sick for as long as his daughter was alive. The servant hadn't seen that. The servant was back at the house. Do you think Jairus has, still has hope? Or do you think this new trial that's just come into his life, the announcement that your daughter's dead, could, you, could there be any bigger trial than that? That that would snuff out his faith? Would it snuff out your faith? See, if the man would, if, would have said, your daughter is dead, that would have been one thing. But he said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the master. And it's no trouble at all for the master. Anytime you come to Jesus, no matter what the circumstance is, it's not trouble. Jesus sees it as an opportunity. Look at it, verse 50. When Jesus heard that, he answered and said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Only believe. She will be well. I like the old King James. Fear not. Puts it really quick. Fear not. Only believe. As the song says, only believe, only believe. All things are what? Possible. 
if you only believe. Will he believe? Will he take Jesus' word or will he take his servant's word? I mean, scientifically, we know that she's dead. And now Jesus comes along and says, what do you say? Fear not. Only believe. And she will be well. Now, this is the message of the parable. The message of the parable is that fear must give way to faith. See, that's the message. The message is fear must give way to genuine faith. A trial comes along. <gasps> what am I going to do? The cares of the world come along. <gasps> what am I going to do? Your retirement's coming along. <gasps> Fear must give way to genuine faith. Fear not, only believe, she will be well. Verse 51, when he came into the house, Jesus did, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. The rest of that throng who were pressing him had to stay outside. Now, all wept. And mourned for her. Who are these all wept and mourned for her? That's the friends, the family, the neighbors, relatives who had come to the girl's deathbed, waiting for her to die, to prepare the body, waiting for Jairus to come back with the miracle worker. He doesn't come back and she dies. And now they're dead, they're there with the dead girl. And so they all weep. Now I imagine when the mother and father come in and everyone's crying, guess what they're doing? They just break, they fall apart. It's like you would fall apart. And they just wept. But Jesus said in verse 52, Do not weep. Weep not. That's important. That word, isn't it? Weep. Blessed are they who weep, for they shall laugh. Do you remember when we dealt with that in the Sermon on the Mount? You might be weeping now. Don't weep. She's not dead, but she is sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. She's dead. Why is Jesus saying she's sleeping? Because Jesus is doing a play on words. The Jews used the word sleep to describe death. It was a euphemism. You see, the Jews believed in the resurrection. They believed in a resurrected morning when our bodies are going to wake up. So every person that dies with faith even though they're dead, guess what? They're just sleeping. So are they dead? Yes, the crowd was right. They're dead. Are they sleeping? Yes, Jesus is right. They're just sleeping. So he's using a euphemism. He said she's just sleeping. And they, they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They ridiculed him just like Peter ridiculed Jesus. When Jesus said, who touched me? He said, what do you mean who touched you? 
See, they're contradicting Jesus. So look what Jesus did. He put them all outside. Some translators don't have that. Some translations do. I imagine that's what he did anyway. He got all those naysayers outside. He took the girl by the hand and he called saying, Little girl, arise. And her spirit returned and she arose, what? Immediately. Look back at verse 44. She came behind him and touched her gar his garment and immediately both daughters healed immediately. He said, arise. And look what happened. <clears throat> Number one, her spirit returned. That's how death is described in the body. Separation of spirit from body. Her spirit returned and she arose immediately. So the death is reversed and she's alive and he commanded that she be given something to eat. To strengthen her. Now this is very interesting. He just raises this girl from the dead and he asks them to give her something to eat because the Bible links resurrection with eating. After Jesus was raised, guess what he was doing? He's eating everywhere. I mean, he's eating on the seashore. He's asked for a piece of fish. He's, he's eating. Because in the great resurrection, the first thing we experience is a banquet where there's going to be a lot of eating. And this is an enacted parable, and this is an enacted prophecy. This is explaining the parable of the sower. And it's also showing what it's going to be like in the future. Great eating. Now, what we learn from this is not so much that Jesus can heal or raise people from the dead. We know that. He's already raised somebody from the dead in a funeral procession. And he's healed many people. That's not what this story is about. This story shows us what kind of faith Jesus is looking for. Do you have the kind of faith that rises above fear, rises above trials, rises above worries, rises above circumstance? That's the kind of faith we see displayed here. Two people, two situations show initial spark of faith. Will it be genuine saving faith? And it proves to be that. And thus Jesus gives us two, Luke gives us two living examples of what the parable of the sower looks like in real life. Is this the kind of faith that we display? Is this the kind of faith that we display? Even when we face death? Even when our sons and daughters and spouses and parents die, is this the kind of faith that we display? Or when we face that trial, do we curse God and say, why? Or do we hear Jesus' words, fear not, only believe, because the scripture says, one day, 
all those who are asleep will hear his voice and he will say, rise. It may not happen 10 minutes after that person's dead. It may happen 10 years and it may not be for 10,000 years. But I'm here to tell you that one day all who sleep in Christ Jesus will hear his voice and he will say, arise, and we too will be made whole. And then look at verse 56. And her parents were astonished. And on that great resurrection day, we will be astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Isn't that interesting? Why not? Because the crowds were impeding his whole ministry now. He couldn't even get to people when they were sick. They were impeding them his ministry. If you tell this, man, there'll be another 10,000 here. I won't be able to move. And so, you know what he's going to have to do? In the very next verse, he's going to have to send out his 12 disciples to go into the cities, wherever he was going to go, and preach the gospel and heal people and cast out devils. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for hope. Hope in the midst of sickness, hope in the midst of death, ultimate hope. Hope that comes through genuine faith. A living faith in a living God who demonstrates his power through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.